This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Jane Fonda needs no introduction. She's an icon of the big screen and has been for more than 60 years really. But she's also never been afraid to stand up for the causes she believes in, even when doing so might harm her career. Jane Fonda's here talking to Kim in 2020. She's 82 years young and she'd just written a book about the urgent need to take action against climate change. Enjoy. Oscar-winning actress and activist Jane Fonda has been on the front lines of protest for over 50 years, and she is there again, campaigning for the whole world this time. Climate change is the cause. And last year, Fonda moved to Washington, D.C. to lead the weekly climate change demonstrations called Fire Drill Fridays in honour of Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future and the exhortation to act as if our house was on fire. A book called What Can I Do? The Truth About Climate Change and How to Fix It is the story of Fonda's commitment and a Greenpeace handbook of what is required to save the planet, from the average person to governments, and specifically the US government, of course. Jane Fonda is famous for many things. Her movies, her Oscars, her TV series Grace and Frankie, her fitness videos, her marriages. To some, she is still known as Hanoi Jane for her trip to then North Vietnam in 1972 uh, during her opposition to the Vietnam War. She was first arrested in 1970 and she was still being arrested multiple times during the climate change demonstrations in Washington. She's back in LA under house arrest, I suppose, because of COVID and she joins me now. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Extraordinarily good to talk to you. We have a picture of you on our webpage wearing that red coat. (laughs) What's the significance of the red coat? Well, about uh, not even a week before we started our first fire drill Friday, um, we were talking about what we should wear. Should I wear a fireman's coat or a fireman's hat? Or We decided that was too hokey and that I sh- we should just wear red. I hadn't, didn't have anything red. And so I went out with my friend and assistant to a store and we found a red coat on sale. And, and it's the last new piece of clothing I will ever buy. Really? Why? Because, well, when I was studying about Greta Thunberg, and she's apparently part of a thing called Stop Shop. I'd never even heard of it, but I did a little research. And it was totally in line with how I feel. You know, I, we can't shop our way out of this problem. And we can't discover our identity through shopping. There's way too much consumption in the United States. And so I wanted to walk the talk and just say I'm I'm getting off the consumption treadmill. Inspired by a young girl. Yeah. Granddaughter. I'd I'd hazard a guess that your wardrobe is fairly full as we speak. My closet is full and I haven't changed shape for a few decades, so I have plenty of clothes to wear. I may buy new underwear. No, no, no. Just I was I was assuming I was assuming that underwear was exempt <laughs> yeah. from the stop shop order. Um, what have you learnt in the process of this demonstration? Because as you describe it in the book, 
you had a bit of an epiphany. You were a bit ground down by the whole scenario, as Al Gore said. You'd you were in despair, and something woke you up. What was it? Well, you know, I had done everything that I could do as an individual in terms of how I eat and getting rid of single-use plastics. I drive an electric car, and but you know, I know that. That's just how you're supposed to start. That's the on-ramp, but it's not supposed to be the ending. I needed to do more. I have a platform because I'm famous, and I just I didn't know what to do, and I was very depressed about it until I read Naomi Klein's book, On Fire, A Burning Case for the Green New Deal, and she wrote about the science. I hadn't focused enough. I hadn't done what Greta told me to do. Focus on the science and what the science was telling us, which is that we only have less than 10 years to cut fossil fuel emissions in half. It made me really understand how time was running out and the the bad guy is the fossil fuel industry and that's what we have to focus on. That, that was a big, um, like many people, I was focused more on the demand side, you know, the solar panels and the wind turbines and all of that, without focusing enough on the cause of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry. And then I read what Greta said, I read in in Naomi's book, and she said, we have to get out of our comfort zones. That's what lit me up. And that's what caused me to move, move to D.C. And the minute that I did, and I threw myself into this, my depression lifted. Were you depressed about the world in general? Or, I mean, I know that depression is something that is a recurring or a constant problem for many of us. Well, certainly for me, I come from a long line of depressed people, but I've worked hard over the years to to handle my depression. But it was more related to the climate crisis and the fact that I didn't feel I was doing my fair share. I have a bigger share to do because I'm famous. Famous people, you know, have a bigger platform, so they have to do more, in my opinion. Do you feel an obligation? I th- yeah, I don't want to make people feel guilty. Guilt is no solution. You know, other famous, but a lot of famous people are doing all that they can I you know it's it's not like I'm the only one there's a whole lot of us and a lot of them came to DC to support fire drill Fridays and what I loved about it is the famous people were there to introduce the people that nobody ever heard of the people from the front lines who have grown up in the shadow of the of the of the refineries and the oil wells and the incinerators and they're dying because of it. These are the people we wanted to hear from, so that Americans would understand the climate crisis isn't some far away thing that is not impacting us right now. This is a here and now. Of course, it's a little hard to escape the here and now problem when half my state is burning. Half your state is burning, and we've also got the coronavirus pandemic, which is taken people's minds off the climate change crisis, do you think? No, we worried about that, of course. What were we going to do when we had to shelter in place? Well, we, we brought the Fire Drill Fridays online. I have spent more time on Zoom in the last six months than I ever imagined was possible. And the numbers following us has grown. Listen to this. Last week, we had 750,000 people following us across platforms. In the months of July and August, we had 3 million people. The 
the movement is growing. They care. They understand. They're that they are signing up to volunteer by the thousands. And right now the volunteers are focusing on getting people registered and making sure they vote. That's the most critical thing that we're doing right now because we got to get rid of this guy and get somebody who may not be a, a, a climate activist, pure and simple, but he can be pushed. And what I like to say to these young people who say, well, God, I don't know. I love Bernie, but I don't know if I can bring myself to vote for Joe Biden. And I say to them, well, wouldn't you rather push a centrist than fight a fascist? And they kind of like get that. You once called Trump a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot during an Emmy Awards ceremony, I believe. There is no chance that he's going to do anything about climate change should he win again, no matter how many campaigners you have out there, correct? I, I think that you are correct. He, he is in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry. They give a lot of money. We, we can never again vote for a candidate that takes money from the fossil fuel industry. Um, no, he, he, he can't be pushed. So if he, if, I don't even want to in, consider if he's, we have to change everything. We have to change all our strategy if he's reelected. So we are assuming that we are going to mobilize enough people. And when I say we, I mean everybody, everybody that's thinking straight in America is working to try to get Biden elected. And, um, and that's what we're going to focus on for the next two months. <gasps> two months, only two months. Only oh two months. I mean, in a perfect world, Joe Biden would not be your choice as next president. No, I liked Elizabeth Warren. You know, we're at a, we're at a, a real crossroads civilizationally, and it's not just in the United States, but we are a leading country. So what we do is really important. We're at a major crossroads that requires great, big, bold, structural actions, because we're not just facing a climate crisis. We're facing a, an empathy crisis. Our social fabric is unraveling. And so we have to solve that at the same time that we solve you know, the racial crisis and the, and the health crisis and the climate crisis. And the solutions can be overlapping and, and, and it can, the solutions can be the same. The, the terif- I mean, the exhilarating and the terrifying thing about your book is that everything is connected. I mean, the Green New Deal uh, purports to address climate change, economic inequality, social injustice, water shortages... The whole damn thing. And you think... They all fixed, yes. They, and they're all interconnected. And, it, and you know, it might make people think, oh, my Lord, ain't no way that's going to happen. We just need to sit down and have a cup of tea. But it can happen. It happened in this country in the 1930s when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president and people forced him to take big, brave, bold, and yes, very expensive actions. But it lifted the United States out of despair and desperation. People were starving. People were committing suicide. And it it did address the problems and solve them and brought us things that we still benefit from today, like Social Security, for example. We have to do that again now, only it has to be in, in the clean and sustainable energy sector that moves the economy forward. And it can. There are many, many more jobs in the clean energy sector than in the fossil fuel energy. We just have to make sure 
that that the workers in the fossil fuel and get you know the gas and oil industry and coal industry are trained for new jobs that are union jobs that that pay a, a decent wage so they can support their families and engage in collective bargaining we have to really look after our workers and the communities they live in so they're not left behind the campaign and indeed the book is focusing i think on people who know there's the crisis but don't know quite what to do about it. So it says, look, do this, campaign for that, push for that. But there are an awful lot of people, and it seems a growing number of people, or at least vocally growing in volume, who, you know, they don't trust the government and they don't trust the idea that there's COVID-19 and they don't trust uh, the idea that anybody needs to pull together because... That's some kind of socialist plot. You know what I mean. There's ever since the 40s, I mean, the uh, 40 years ago, ever since Reagan in this country, Ronald Reagan and Thatcher in England, there has been a very deliberate, well-orchestrated effort to make people think that government is bad, that individualism is good. And we have to fight against it with every ounce of our being. Individualism is a tool of the working class. We're vulnerable as individuals. We only have power when we come together in an organized and strategic way. And when that happens, history shows that we can make a difference. It's the only thing that has ever made a difference in terms of turning history in a new direction. And that's why what I'm interested in, along with a lot of other organizations, but my interest is building numbers. You know, there's a project at Yale called Called climate communications. It's a very, very well-respected organization. And they have, they have said that you only need three and a half percent of a population. And it's true in New Zealand and Australia and everywhere in the world, as well as the United States. Three and a half percent of people support you, you win. They also say that there are 23 million Americans who, who know there's a climate crisis, but don't know what to do and have never done anything because nobody asked them. When you have 23 million people who know there's a problem but don't know what to do, you don't need to worry about the people who don't believe there's a problem. Organize those 23 million people and you've won. And 13 million people are prepared to engage in civil disobedience, but nobody's asked them. So our target is the great unasked. Get them organized and we've won. You've then got to sort out the rest of the world, right? (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying no 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 but I mean you know if even if you got all your ducks in a row and the United States was right on on course then you have the rest of the world which you know you have China you have India you have many many countries that will contribute as much to climate change as America that, uh, that's right but we 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 are the country that can lead the way. We have the capital. We have the technological know-how. We can really help the global south leap over the fossil fuel era and start developing their economies and their countries based on a renewable energy sector. We can do that. If we do what's necessary, that will signal to other countries that they can do it too. Right now, if we keep doing what we're doing, other countries are saying, well, why the hell should we fall in line when they're doing what they're doing? 
I mean, China's making huge efforts to, um, to, to reduce their carbon footprint. Do you know, throughout your years of, of protest, I, you've, you, you've always sounded like Jane Fonda. You've always sounded committed and heartfelt and energised. But you mention your husband, Tom Hayden, ex-husband, former husband, the late Tom Hayden, in your book, very prominent activist, and you suggested that you had to come out from under his shadow. He was a very dominant personality. Was there a point where you found your own voice? Yeah. When I became single again at the age of like 62 is when I began to develop a, and believe in my own narrative and be my own person. 62 is quite late. Hey. <laughs> Better late than never. <laughs> no, certainly better late than never. But I'm not going to miss the flower show. Does it? Does it mean that you you chose men who were dominant, and you had yeah. to stop doing that choosing? Yeah, I chose really fascinating, very strong, brilliant men, and I learned so much from them, and I don't regret it for a moment. But I didn't have enough confidence in myself to entirely hold my own, you know. And now, well, first of all, I'm so old that, you know, it's, I don't want any more relationships. But also, I don't have time. I'm so, I'm so caught up in trying to build this movement that I don't have time for a relationship. And I'm glad that I don't because I'd probably make the same mistakes. There is a certain amount of cynicism about celebrity endorsements of this or that. You're in no doubt that your use of your own celebrity can be a force for major good, and you see evidence of this. Well, yeah, I do. I mean, this is a great movement that we're building, and it's centered on love and joy, and people are having a good time. They write me as volunteers, and... um, you know, I think just poppycock that celebrities shouldn't take stances and, and, and have a platform that they talk from. I mean, there's, there's no problem with that. And there's a lot of us that do it. So I'm, I'm not the only one. And, you know, we're, I, I, my metaphor for celebrities is we're, we're like um, repeaters. I don't know what the word would be in New Zealand. But Influences. Those, no, those... those you know when you see a big mountain and you'll see an antenna, a tower uh-huh. on the top of yeah, yeah. that's an antenna. Yeah. They're called repeaters because they they pick up the signals, the weaker signals down in the valley, and they carry them over the mountains so that those signals have a wider audience. That's the role of celebrities. You know, when I was in D.C. week after week, my role was to get people to come and listen to the frontline voice. The voices that nobody hears. The teach-ins that you organized while the protests were on in Washington, D.C. and still going on online must have been tremendously educative for everybody, including you. Absolutely. I feel kind of selfish because it was a great way for me to learn all kinds of things that I hadn't known before. See, every week we would focus on a specific um, area of the climate crisis. It's what the book does. One chapter is about oceans. One chapter is about forests. One chapter is about agriculture. 
that's very important for New Zealand. Uh, one, one section is women and the Pentagon and militarism and jobs. And, you know, so, yeah, I learned a lot and so did everybody else. Um, a number of people are texting in about you and uh, with admiration, also criticism. One would have to say somebody, and this goes to the point of the book, really. Um, uh-huh. Yes, all right, fossil fuels, but why isn't anybody talking about plastic pollution? And you would say it comes down to the same thing. It's the fossil fuel industry, correct? Yeah, fossil fuels are what make plastic. <laughs> Do you have any regret about your endorsement of beauty products in the current climate crisis? Um, no, no. They're, the, the, the products that I endorse are um, recycled. They're good. They're healthy. They're, they're not bad for the environment. Um, one of them is called Uncle Bud's, and it's hemp. Um, it's CBD uh, lotions for face and and for joints that hurt and things like that. No, I don't, I don't have any problem with it. Is it medicinal cannabis? It's not psychoactive. No, it's 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 cannabis, but they take out the stuff that makes you high. All right, that's not much fun, then, is it? <laughs> Feels good. <laughs> um, compare, please the presidency of Donald Trump with the presidency of Nixon? Nixon was a smart man. I didn't agree with most of what he did, but he did fabulous things for the Native American people here. He did wonderful things, the clean air, clean water. You know, he did good things for the environment. He understood history and he understood the importance of democratic institutions much as I disagree with him, and he really tried to hurt me. Trump doesn't understand any of that. He may be smart in the street sense, but he's really dumb strategically, and he just doesn't understand how he's damaging democratic... Well, he doesn't care about damaging democratic institutions. What he loves is oligarchy. What he loves is... People, you know, like Camille Young and Putin and Bolsonaro and Duterte. And he likes these dictators who treat a country like their own, their own bank account. You can do whatever you want with it and enrich yourself and it doesn't matter. That's how he thinks. There do seem to be enough Americans who also want a strong man in charge to suggest that he might win another term. Listen, we have to be prepared for that. We cannot take for granted that with all the horrible things that people are finding out about Trump, that they'll vote against him. He has, for some reason that I don't really understand, he has a hard core of supporters. Um, what we have to do is make sure that the undecideds, you know, the one, there are people who voted for Obama and then they... They voted for Trump, and um, and they're, they're a little bit. Are you there? Have yes, I lost I'm here. you. No, You're, I have okay. They, we, those are the people that we have to try to um, that we have to try to persuade, and 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 the way to do that, I think, is not to blame and badmouth, or it's find out what's important to a person. 
and then tell them something about it that they don't know. For example, I've because I've knocked on a lot of doors and people don't know who I am and it's really fun. You learn so much. I knocked on the door of a woman in San Diego, California, and she was a huge Trump supporter. She said, I'm 200% behind him. He's my man. He gets me. He understands me. Fox News was playing in the in the living room. You could hear it. She had three children, one of whom had a precondition, a medical, whatever, what's it called? A pre-existing condition. Mm. And a mother who uh, was ill, who was living with her and she was between jobs so I listened to her and then I said are you aware that Trump's health care plan does not provide um, coverage for pre-existing conditions and she gasped she didn't know that that's the kind of thing that you have to do with people like that now some people doesn't matter what you say they will never be persuaded but we don't need them we have enough of people who will listen when given facts in the right way, but we mustn't bad mouth and blame each other. And, you know, we, that just shuts people down. We have to remain open and try to reason with people, those who can be reasoned with. Do you intend to get back onto the streets when you're able to? Yeah, I sure do. I can't wait. I have to go back to work. I, I want to go back to work so I I'm, 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 won't be so busy and back to, work mean, <laughs> back to work means another another series of Grace and Frankie, does it? Yeah, we have our final seventh season to do, which we'll probably finish in about a year. And then um, maybe I'll try to do Fire Drill Friday while I'm filming Grace and Frankie, if I can be given the, the time to do that. Um, but I'm hoping that between now and mid-January, when we go back to work, I'll be out on the streets again. And... Um, yeah, and I think that the climate crisis isn't going away. I'll be dead, and the climate crisis will be continuing. I wish, but you... I want to focus on the rest of my life so that we can try to diminish the the amount of damage that we're doing because pretty soon it's going to become irre- irreversible. Um, I wish you well. Uh, there are a lot of people looking forward, of course, to another series of Grace and Frankie. You take care. At 82, you sound like you've got uh, many more years in front of you yet. What are you doing there? Are you drinking a cup of tea? Uh, Iced tea, yeah, I am. (laughs) Very nice, thank you. Through through a metal straw. Oh, good on you. That's what the noise is, metal straws. Very, very, very atmospheric. Thank you. Jane Fonda, uh, who was talking to us from L.A. and talking about her book, What can I do the truth about climate change and how to fix it? Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. The year is 2017. NASA puts out a call to inventors and entrepreneurs around the globe for ideas to solve one of the most intrinsically human problems, space defecation. New Zealanders, of course, have a proud history of -of out-of-the-box thinking. We invented the bungee jump, egg beaters, the jetpack. We can sort this out, right? 